strong and striking. You know what happens? If you turn this way, it goes off. So let's just ignore these people here. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's either the microphone or my neck. I think if you, you know, it's, it's kind of a loose, a loose something or other. <laughs> and we don't know if it's the speaker or the microphone. Probably both. Oh, well. Keeps us humble, huh? <laughs> Jeremiah 2 has been a fairly dramatic indictment of Israel by Jeremiah. In some, he said, you have much privilege and much disobedience. The two shouldn't go together, but they have in your case. Essentially, he said, Israel, God chose you. God blessed you. God gave you much. You squandered it. In fact, you exchanged God for false gods. The theme continues in this chapter. Look at verse 1. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, that is to say she marries another, will he, the husband from whom she is divorced, will he still return to her? Will he take her back? That's what's going on. Will not that land be completely polluted? But you, now God takes that illustration and applies it to Israel, you are a harlot, not physical but spiritual, with many lovers. Yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. In the case of divorcement, if a woman remarries, it is illegal for her husband, the one privy to the divorce, to take her back. And yet, Israel, you're expecting me to take you back. There has been a divorcement. And you have taken not only one other partner, but multitudes of partners. And yet you expect me to take you back as if everything... What do you think is going on? <laughs> um, a plane? Oh, here we... <laughs> so, uh, can you see the nature of the argument God is posing? Not a person here would have any other expectation of God. No one would here say, God, you're unfair. No one here would say, God, you're harsh. Everyone here would say, God, you're right. There's a stipulation in the law. By the way, this passage, this stipulation, this practice is founded in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, wherein there is a condition in which divorce is permitted. And in that case, just what we read plays out. If there is divorcement, uh, the first husband cannot later take back his wife if she has remarried and divorced another. So that is the law of Moses. God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai. So, so everyone here would say all God is doing is enforcing the law. He is a law enforcer. He gave the law. He is enforcing the law. Israel deserves to be consequenced because she has committed an infraction of the law. Nobody here in his or her right mind uh, would have any antagonism towards God on this basis. Uh, Charlie? You know, the only mention, tradition against that is grace. And it's of Hosea whenever he took back his wife from the altar of God and stripped them deeply and gone into sin in the worst way possible. But through grace, he brought her back. Well said. That's the only way. Well said. That's the only way. That might even be mentioned here. If you would just be patient for two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, so look at verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been violated. By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert and you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. What does that mean, like an Arab in the desert? This is not an indictment against a whole people group, Arab peoples. Let me tell you what's happening. In the desert, even today in the Middle East, are nomadic peoples. They are Arab peoples, and they move from place to place. It's a lifestyle that's been going on for centuries. It's a chosen lifestyle. They live in tents. Uh, They're shepherds. They move from place to place. Some, however, have been of questionable character. Not all, some. And so sometimes they've posted themselves on the heights so that they can overtake a caravan unaware of the assault. God is applying that to Israel and saying in the same manner, it's not just that you have been influenced by the false gods of the land. You have actually sought after them. Just like a ne'er-do-well posting himself as a deliberate strategy in the desert to come upon unsuspecting travelers. This is the nature of your degradation that God is saying to Israel. Now, verse 3, therefore, here's a consequence of what Israel has done. The showers, rains, have been withheld. There has been no spring rain, yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Israel's moral spiritual, ethical infractions have actually impacted on the environment. The number one cause of environmental pollution is not your big SUV. It's your sinful heart. It's worse than you think. You can't fix it with a new light bulb. You can only fix it by forgiveness from the Savior. Internal spiritual pollution has ramifications we underestimate. It actually impacts on the physical realm. It does. Now, the environmentalists want to skip over that and just deal with the symptom. But the problem of environmental degradation is sinful degradation on the part of the people who live here on earth. That's us. Okay, verse 4. Have you not just called to me my father, Abba, personal term? Have you, sinful Israel, have you not just addressed me as Abba? You are my friend from my youth. Will he be angry forever? Have you not said all these things? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you've spoken, yet have done evil things, and you've had your way. You know what God is saying? He's saying words are empty, unless backed up by action. He's saying you profess repentance, but you keep doing the same stuff. He says, talk is cheap. He says here, by illustration, what he declares later, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He's not a naive parent whose kid is on the run, who gets caught, and then the kid says, I won't do it again. But he's been doing it again and again and again. A naive parent acts as if the mere words make everything right. God says, no, you say things. You call me daddy, but you go after other dads. You violate the covenant. 
That's what God says. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? So here's the deal. Divided kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. God is indicting Judah now. He's saying, Judah, have you seen what your sister to the north did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree. She was a harlot there, spiritual harlot. Verse 7, I thought after she had done all these things, she'll return to me. But she didn't return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, didn't fear. She went up and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Remember, stones and trees were the objects of worship of the pagan peoples in the land. Israel did the same. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah didn't accept, uh, did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. They both, it's a tale of two sisters. Both have sinned. The one in the north sinned, was consequence, and began to stop. The one in the south saw the sister in the north sin, saw the consequences, but she continues to sin anyway. Hers is actually the greater violation. So what she should have learned from, she didn't. That's kind of what's going on over here. Now, the writ of divorce, uh, some may have a question mentioned in verse 8, is probably a reference to a historical event which took place in 722 B.C., wherein faithless Israel to the north was invaded by Assyria and taken into captive. It's as if she went away from the one to whom she was betrothed, her husband, her provider, her protector. And when she did that, she no longer had his protection. Hence, she was assaulted by Assyria in 722 B.C. So that's the deal. Okay, now it goes on. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's do this. Let's stop here just for a second. We've gone through the, all of chapter 2 and the first 11 verses of chapter 3. If I stopped here, once again, if we had no more Bible, I'll tell you what you would know about God. You would know that he's just. You would know he's righteous. You would know he's holy and takes his law seriously. You would know he doesn't grade on a curve. You know he calls sin, sin. He doesn't minimize it. You would know that God is fair. You would know that when there is disobedience, he will judge it. You will know, in a sense, that he is righteously indignant, angry, even wrathful when people sin against him. You would know all that, and you would be right to know that. But knowing all that wouldn't make you entirely comfortable with him because you would be saying things like, me too. I'm Israel. I'm privileged. I sin. Whoops. I guess I'll receive the same. And you would be right to think all that. Except for this. There's more to God than the first 11 verses of Jeremiah. You've got to read the whole package, right? Verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, what's the, first, what's the next word? Return. Now stop. You know what return means? Grace. Wait just a second. Listen, you and I have had relationship problems in the course of our lives with others uh, to whom we have not extended the invitation, return. <laughs> We've just said it's over. Forget it. You go your way, I go mine. I don't want anything to do with you. 
Maybe we have felt justified in so doing. We surely would feel God would be. Israel, that's it. I gave you a shot. You played games with me. I blessed you. You cursed me. Bye. Have a good life. We're done. Everyone here would say, that's cool. It's understandable. It's justice. It's fairness. Until you run into the word return. This is an invitation by that very offended God. He doesn't say it's over. He says, come back. That's called grace, folks. You know what that's called? That's called the gospel in the Old Testament. That's good news. Bad news, it's over. Good news, it's not over. You can return. Do you understand this is God's invitation? you understand it has nothing to do with any virtuous character uh, in Israel? Because God still calls her, look, faithless Israel, right? Return. Return because you've cleaned up your act. Return because you've made some promises. Return because you mended the way between. Return. You're still faithless. Listen, folks, didn't God give the same invitation to you while you were yet a sinner and me? What did you bring to the table? Nothing. You brought sin. So did I. So, 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 so I, I know how God is going to be to me because I have a record of how he was with Israel. As he responded to Israel, he responds to everybody else. That's why it's important to study how God responded to Israel because you'll know that's how he's going to respond. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger. Why? For I am gracious. That's the good news in the Old Testament. It does not say, I will not look upon you in anger because you're going to change your ways, because you're going to make promises, because you're going to clean up your act, because you're going to join a church, because you're going to get baptized, because you're going to sing in the choir. No. I will not look upon you in anger for I am gracious. That's how you got saved. That's how I got saved. It's not because of any promises, vows, good intentions. I save you because I am a gracious Savior. That's always been the way. How do I know that's the case with me? Because it was the case with Israel. Can you see why Satan has to get rid of the Jews? If he gets rid of the Jews, you will be robbed robbed of a real-life illustration of how God responds to sinners. How does he respond to sinners? He holds out a line of return. Why? Because he has the capacity to be gracious even in the face of terrible sin. You've sinned terribly. Good night. And me too. And I have assurance of salvation. Why? Because look how God dealt with my forebears. Look how God dealt with Israel. I will not be angry with you forever because I am gracious. Then it goes on. There's a condition. Here it is, verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Nothing's ever changed. It isn't just this, this, oh, it's just a mistake, Israel. You had a bad day. Everyone's doing it. Your mama didn't breastfeed you. I mean, you've sinned. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't minimize it. Israel then, anyone since then, Jew, Gentile, Arab, anybody, you have to acknowledge sin. And then God is prepared to forgive. Acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You've scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. You've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, 
Here it is the second time. O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you. I will take you, look, I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. You know what God's saying? Not everyone will be saved. But some from every people group on earth will be saved. Generally, there's more than one person living in a city, right? So when God says, I'll take one from a city, he doesn't mean he saves whole cities. He doesn't save whole people groups. When it says two from a family, he doesn't save whole families automatically. There's no such thing. There may be a person in the family, even the head of the household who accepts the Lord, but that doesn't mean automatically everyone else in his household is saved. You understand what I'm saying? There's no such thing as a Christian nation. America is not America is loaded with Christians and those who ain't. He doesn't God doesn't save nations. He blesses nations. I didn't say he doesn't do that. But he doesn't bless nations with wholesale salvation. That's a personal matter. There's no such thing as corporate salvation. Not every Jew is saved by being a Jew. Not every Gentile is saved by being a Gentile. Not every Baptist is saved by being a Baptist. (laughs) Personal. Acknowledgement, confession of sin. Making recourse to the graciousness of the Savior. So here's what God is saying with regard to Israel. There will always be a remnant. There'll be one from a city. There'll be two from a family. It's, it's re, the, the word remnant is very, very important theologically. Yes, sir. That's well said. God has no grandchildren. <laughs> remnant. In every age, there has been a remnant of Jews who believe in Jesus. That's very important. Why? It proves God has not forsaken Israel. Why is that important? If he's forsaken Israel, you're next. I've said this a million times. I don't mind offending you again. You ain't so hot. (laughs) Israel is just typical of other people. The record of Israel is in the Bible because it's a record of human nature and a record of divine nature. That's why it's there. So don't be pointing the finger at at Israel. They're just a mirror. They're just showing you human nature. Entrusted with great blessing and privilege... I'm not sure we've done so hot. So, 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 so here's the deal. There's a remnant in every generation. Can I prove it to you? Let's just take a little time and look at me. I'm the proof. Why am I, why am I here? This is a Baptist church, right? Last time I checked. There's not like a whole bunch of Jews around here. There's a few here and there. Why are we alive? That's the deal. Not only why are we redeemed, why are we alive? I'll tell you why. Because God says, I'll take one from a city. I'll take two from a family. And in so doing, I will show you that I will fulfill my promises to be faithful in spite of the unfaithfulness of the people group. So anyway, that's kind of what's happening. And then it says, I'll bring you to Zion. What's Zion? Anyone know what Zion is? Yeah, it's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. Terms are used interchangeably. Zion. I'll bring you to Jerusalem. You just found out why Jerusalem is important. Because it's important to God. If it's important to God, who else is it important to? Non-God. 
one who would be God but is not. Antichrist. If it's important to the Christ, it is important to the Antichrist. If it is important to Savior, it's important to Satan. You just got your explanation for the conflict in the Middle East. Right here. God has a plan to bring the remnant of believing Israel to Zion, to Jerusalem. There to be worshipped by them. Satan read the Bible. In fact, he knows it better than some of us. He just doesn't obey it. And he would be like the most high God. That was his sin. I want to be God. He's not creative. He's a counterfeiter. Therefore, he wants the city God said he wants. Therefore, he uses religions, politics, nations to try to wrest control of Zion from the people to whom God gave it. That explains the whole Middle East crisis. And that's why it cannot be solved by our government or the United Nations because they only know politics. They know nothing. Darkened in their understanding. They don't see the cosmic battle behind the scenes. They don't understand. Satan simply wants what belongs to Jesus. Zion belongs to Jesus. Satan wants it. That's the explanation. So what does he use? He uses the alignment of the nations to come against Israel, and he uses Islam, who our past president wrongly called a religion of peace. He's wrong. It's a religion of conquest. Are you kidding me? Read the Koran. Infidel. Have you been called that lately? That's what you are, according to Islam. You're an infidel. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> Verse 15. Then, then means future, right? Then I will give you shepherds. I will give you, Israel, shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It hasn't happened, but it will happen. You know who's feeding Israel now? Yeah, I can tell you from experience. Our rabbis. You know what they're feeding us on? Junk. They're not feeding us on truth. They're blind and they're keeping us in blindness. And by the way, they're not alone. So too are the religious leaders of just about every major uh, man-made religion on earth. They're just false shepherds. They're feeding people on all kinds of heresy and nonsense. It's really terrible. Now, they're feeding the people on that because the people want it, not just blaming the false teachers. Good night. In order to be a false teacher, you have to have a bunch of followers. So it's a, But God says in that day it will be different. Uh, I, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. That's not happened. Now, now, the reason why I'm emphasizing it's not yet happened is that this means there's a future for Israel. Why do I say that? Because you've got a bunch of people increasingly running around today who says because Israel has turned from God, he's turned from them. He has no plan for Israel. I want to tell you how bad that is. And what makes you think he has a plan for you? Could I please give you the history of the so-called Christian church in America? Oh, my goodness. A major denomination, it's not a denomination, a major religious organization is riddled with a pedophilia. Another one, the one next door, um, uh, invites, I read the article, and is open to gay, um, lesbian, uh, transgender folks. Now, by the way, so are we. 
we must be living proof of a loving God to every person. But we're not open to the lifestyle. They are. That's a church, right? It has a cross out in front. So don't be pointing the finger at Israel. Oh, boy. Well, I give you a record of the church. Oh, my goodness. Un, 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 unbelievable. But here's, so here's the deal. If I think God doesn't have a future plan for Israel, what assurance do you have that he has a future plan for you? Would we like to go around? Let's take turns here. Let's start out. Distill with you. Tell us the last time you went astray. Tell us in graphic t- No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> and then we'll go, we'll just go, we'll just go around. Oh, I'm sorry, my dear sister. It's over for you. No, you could say, because you could say, Stuart, have you not seen God's response to wayward Israel? Oh, yeah, I guess you're right, Stella. It's not over because he's gracious. You can repent. You could return. How do I know that? Look how he's responded to Israel. Therefore, Satan wants to get rid of Israel, and then God will be robbed of a tremendous teaching tool. Okay, so it goes on here, verse 16. It shall be in those days. That's future, right? We're still future. Those days. When you are multiplied and increased in the land, that's a sign of God's blessing. They will no longer say, look at this, the Jewish people in that day will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. Whoa! The Ark of the Covenant is like a big deal to Jewish people and all people. You know, the Ark of the Covenant, it housed sacred elements. Nobody has seen it since 586 B.C. The Babylonians came into the land, destroyed Judah. Who knows where the Ark of the Covenant is? And You know what I mean? They make movies about it. and all. This is like a big deal. If it was ever found, my people from all over the world would rush to it, fall down before it, touch it, kiss it, worship it. And not just my people, every other lunatic on the face of the earth would attach undue significance. I mean, everyone, the Ark of the Covenant. What will it take for one day the interest in, the fascination with the Ark of the Covenant to wane? Here it is, verse 17. At that time, it's still future, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And now you know why the Ark of the Covenant will not be so important, nor will it be rebuilt. Why? Jerusalem itself will be the throne of the Lord. What's his name? That's exactly right. That's the Lord Jesus. Christ will one day rule from a restored temple. Forget about the ark. There'll be a restored temple in Jerusalem. And all the nations will be gathered to it. To what? To Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Now, they've already been gathered historically to Jerusalem for what? For destruction and will again. I pray America doesn't get behind it. But in that day they'll be gathered, not for destruction, but for worship, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. That's not happened, but that will happen. That tells me there's a future for Israel. Verse 18. In those days, again, it's still future. It hasn't happened yet. The house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. The nation's been divided, northern tribes, southern tribes. Since about 900 B.C., they've not been united, but they will in that day. They will come together from the land of the north to the land, notice this, to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. I must say a few words about this. You have those today, even certain theologians, let alone politicians, 
who say Israel does not have a divine right to the land she possesses today. This one verse tells me they're wrong. In that day, they'll come together to the land. Land means land. That I gave your fathers as an inheritance. When did God do that? Genesis 12. He gave it to Abraham's descendants. Genesis 15. Genesis 17. He reaffirmed it to Isaac, to Jacob, on and on and on. He gave the land to Israel. Yes, Israel does have the divine title deed to the land. Don't buy this stuff increasingly preached out of sympathy for the Palestinians. Now, I think we ought to be sympathetic. Good night. We ought not harden towards any people group. There is the plight of the Palestinians. Absolutely. No one is saying that isn't the case. But in supporting a better lifestyle for the Palestinians, I don't want to turn against Israel. It's not necessary to do that. So you want to be careful about this kind of stuff. So there are those in their quest to befriend uh, Palestinians who say Israel in disobedience has forfeited the right to the land. This is not true. I just want to tell you something. You got an inheritance also. You got a title deed to your promised land. We call that heaven. Is God going to take that away from you? What if you sin? Not if. You do sin. Have you lost your title deed to the land? I'll answer it for you. No, you didn't. Why? Because you got it without condition. But what did you get with condition? Your full enjoyment of your inheritance. So look, you got saved and you didn't contribute one thing to it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave you salvation by his graciousness, just based on your need and his grace. You can never forfeit it because you never earned it. But what can you forfeit? The full blessing of salvation through disobedience. The most unhappy, miserable person on earth, I've said this a million times, is not an unsaved person. It's a Christian in rebellion against Christ. He did not withdraw his salvation from you but you cannot experience the joy of salvation. So to Israel. God in, Israel's, in response to Israel's sin has not broken his word. He's kept her in the land. He's given her title deeds of the land. But never in Israel's history, because of her disobedience, has she had full possession of the land and full unobstructed enjoyment of the land. Today she is assaulted inside, outside, and on all fronts. Never in Israel's history has she had full enjoyment of the land. Do you know the title deed to the land God gave and which he specifically mentioned in the Old Testament extends eastward into Iraq, Tigris and Euphrates River? It's part of the land of promise. What happened? God didn't withdraw his title deed. God grieves. Because the people she gave the land to in disobedience have not been able to enjoy it fully. So too we Christians. So if God, because Israel has sinned for sure, 
if he takes away what he just said here in verse 18, the land I gave to your fathers as an inheritance, then you have reason to believe you're going to lose your salvation. Do you see how important this is? Can you see why Satan hates the Jews? If he gets rid of them, he gets rid of a number one proof of the fact that salvation is free by grace, by God's mercy, not by a person's merit. You won't have that illustration. Okay, so it goes on here. Verse 19. Then I said, how I would set you. This is, this is like the words of a grieving dad. It's unbelievable. It's like a dad who's been hurt by a wayward child. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. I desire to be your dad. I desire to be your husband. The only thing standing in the way is you, not me. Verse 21. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel. Because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons. There's the word return again. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Israel has not yet said that. When will Israel say it? What will it take for Israel to say it? A little something called the great period of tribulation here on earth. There's always been tribulation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a period of great tribulation. It lasts seven years. You, as a Christian, will not be there to see it. Why? The Lord Jesus will return first. It's called the rapture. He will catch you up in the air. You shall be forever with him. Following it, terrible things will befall the earth. What things? God the Father has his key representative and incarnation, God the Son. Remember I told you Satan is a counterfeiter? He will act as a father and he will have his incarnation too. He's called the Antichrist. Who is he? I don't know. All I know is in every age Satan has had his man standing ready to enter the scene. How will this terrible figure Antichrist receive such support? Oh, Come on. It's fascinating to me to see who is elected to high political office today on the basis, at the least, of minimal experience to hold the office. Forget any job. Forget about the nature of the decision-making while in the office. I think it's fascinating to me that America has elected to the highest office a senator from a very small state with very limited political experience. At the least, it would be like us saying, hey, next week our youth minister is going to be our senior pastor. You would say, maybe. He perhaps is a wonderful guy, but does he have sufficient experience in leading us? So I simply am not trying to be negative. I'm simply saying, oh, my goodness. Does this senator have experience in being the commander-in-chief of our armed forces? How does this happen? 
You answer the question. All I'm telling you, it happens. I did not say he's the Antichrist. Don't be pinning that stuff on me. I'm not going for that. I'm just saying, don't tell me it's outlandish that a person of influence who can present a sufficiently attractive persona that desperate people darkened in their understanding usher him into high office only to find out they made a big mistake. See, so the Antichrist, and today people are electable not on the basis of the content of their message or their character. That's irrelevant. It's all media hype. If you're an attractive personality, if you speak well, if you're articulate, people are not going to see past that and they're going to vote you into, into office. It's very unfortunate today, but a poor speaker is not electable anymore. That's a shame. You know, regardless of how good a leader a person may be, if you don't come across, you ain't getting elected. So Antichrist is going to present himself in some uh, marvelously attractive way. I don't know. Maybe he'll be tall and good-looking. I don't know. I have any idea. All I know is he's going to have the capacity to usher in something that's not yet happened, and that is a kind of peace in the Middle East. Now, it'll be more than health care reform, let me tell you. That's, that's a major deal. But, I mean, if you, whoever can pull off peace in the Middle East... It's going to get people's attention for sure because nobody has succeeded in doing it. So then Jews and Arabs are going to get along. They're going to sign a covenant and people are going to say, what is with you evangelical conservative Bible something Christians? Why are you upset about that? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible has told us there will be people who will say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So what's going to happen when people lay down their arms? Israel, whose only human defense right now is her strong military, is going to lay down her arms. And, and she's going to get beat up really, really bad. And Antichrist is even going to succeed in having a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem in Zion uh, that, that he's going to use as his base of operations. And why does he want to do something like that? He read it somewhere. He read that the real deity is going to rule and reign from Zion. You just did today. The throne of the Lord Jesus will be in Zion, in Jerusalem. Satan is a Bible guy. He read the Bible, don't you see? And so he wants that. So there'll be this temple. It's not authorized by God for crying out loud. And there'll be the temple. But then he'll require the Jews to worship him from it. Then the Jews are going to start saying, oh, my goodness. This is not what we thought would happen. We thought it was going to be changed for the better. It's changed for the worse. And he's going to do all kinds of crazy stuff. And all terrible things are going to break loose on earth. And then the Lord Jesus is going to return after a period of great tribulation. And it's at the end of that period that faithless Israel will say, Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. That's what it's going to take for Israel to repent. And that's what Romans 11 says when it says, And then, then, also future, all Israel will be saved. Does that mean every Jew just because he's a Jew? Of course not. All those Jews who survived the tribulation... And by the way, most are going to be wiped out. It's going to make the Holocaust look like a, a picnic lunch. The Antichrist is going to make Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Those who survive will look upon him whom they have pierced, will repent and turn to him. And so the text goes on to say, uh, verse 23, Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth, their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our humiliation cover us, for we have sinned 
against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. To bring about that repentance requires something called the tribulation. The worst is yet to come, and it will be followed by the unimaginably best you and I could ever, ever, even in our wildest imagination, conceive of. Such will be the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ during a 1,000-year millennial reign on earth from Zion following the tribulation. That's the period that Isaiah speaks of when he says the lion will lie down with the lamb. Even antagonisms in the natural order, you see, will be reversed. And people will beat their plowshares, their swords into plowshares. No more need for military. No more death and dying in that case. The worst has to come and then the best has yet to come. And just as God has to deplete Israel of any confidence in herself, I believe so too he has to do that to America. I'm not trying to point the finger at any man or anyone else. So it's us. I'm trying to say our, conf- our undue confidence in any political initiative, in any economic plan, in anything, it has to give way to our confidence in the Creator God. And what will it take to do that? Well, you've got to get empty before you're willing to be filled. Welcoming, welcome to the emptying process. That's what's happening in our day. All of the mooring points we used to be able to count on in our country are gone. I'm not blaming a soul. I'm blaming me. You ought to blame you. (laughs) All of us have sinned. All of us in our own ways have exercised independence from God, our autonomy from God. And the consequence is God is saying, okay, I'll let you try to fix it yourself. Is it working for you? Then maybe one from a city, two from a family will say, oh, God, we have sinned against you. You are only hope. We ask for forgiveness. Would you forgive us? Would you come into our lives, Lord Jesus? I think we can anticipate more people turning against God and more people turning towards God. That's just what happens when the burner is turned up on the pot. Yes, sir. Our brother was saying that, uh, and he's so right. We, we shouldn't place undue confidence in, in uh, undue confidence in, in politics, but we do have a responsibility to vote. And he read a statistic that said only 20% of evangelicals turn out to vote. So that's a problem, isn't it? That's that's a good word, Charlie. Yes. When he comes back to his things to rule this earth for that millennium period, we are going to be there at Zion with him because of our faith in yeah. him. And he said, forever we'll be with the Lord. Yes. For 1,000 years, we're not going to be in heaven. Right. We're going to be right here on this earth honoring him. That's exactly right. Charlie, will you be wearing like a pink uh, handkerchief? <laughs> and I'm just wondering. In no, I'm just curious. In a, how could it be like a perfect day when a guy's wearing a pink... You know, I just... It just... I don't know. I just have to... Okay. Nothing will be offensive. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. Um, 
do you know, Lord, we don't have to have that much faith anymore. We could just open our eyes and see the unfolding of your plan. Uh, we could see human nature as you have so well described it. We could see your nature as you have so well demonstrated it. We can see things unfolding. Uh, maybe years ago, we, even we would be tempted to think far-fetched, but not far-fetched at all. Not at all, is it, Lord Jesus? Thank you for your sovereignty. Praise you for your goodness. Uh, Father, I love the truth you stated. You said the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Oh, God, would you please affect the leaders of our day uh, towards the end of the uh, unfolding of your plan? Have your way, Lord Jesus, with all of our leaders, with all of us who follow. Uh, we respect, do respect to our leaders, but we worship you. We don't put undue confidence in our leaders, political, theological, church leaders. No, we put our utmost confidence in you. That gives us joy, Lord Jesus. Uh, to know that you are Abba, Father, are so trustworthy, so good. Good night. You know about the future even before it happened. That's quite amazing. Thank you for sharing a glimpse of it with us. It's both, on the one hand, a little disturbing. On the other hand, very, very hopeful. Thank you for telling us a bit about the end even before it's happened. And until then, would you fill us with a, a joy and a peace and an enthusiasm for the things that concern you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you later.